there was a little voice in my head said, oh my goodness, you're totally going to pull over and go and look at that squirrel and take it home and put it in the freezer for your son, aren't you? From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. One of the first things you notice is all these cows walking around everywhere. They seem to just like hang out with their friends on a street corner. And so I've decided to follow a cow for an entire day. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. What he's doing is gross. It's disgusting. It's macabre. Today, a teenage taxidermist, a community of medical migrants who settled in Snowflake, Arizona, and a day in the life of a sacred cow. And I'm not talking figuratively. I'm talking moo. Since 6 o'clock with this cow. Yes. What are you doing with it? I'm just watching her. Third Coast has been around long enough now, since 2000, to have followed many producers and sound artists along the arc of their careers, from the time they burst onto the audio scene to their seasoned work that we love. One such producer is Pike Malinowski, a writer, poet, and sound artist whose work is so unique we are just thrilled to hear that he's got something new in the works. Because when he does, it is always a treat. He's kept us waiting for a few years for his most recent feature, a story about the life of a cow in the holy city of Varanasi, India. Here is A Cow a Day. There's a man doing laundry on a rock. You can hear all the boats out on the river ferrying tourists. You can hear the temple bells in the distance ringing in the morning prayer. So this is the holiest city of Hinduism. People come here to die, actually. If you die in Varanasi, apparently skip a bunch of steps in your reincarnation cycle and and you go straight to nirvana. When you come to Varanasi as a foreigner, one of the first things you notice is all these cows walking around everywhere. It's almost like human beings, you know, they walk on the road, they go into shops. They seem to just like hang out with their friends on a street corner. And so I've decided to follow a cow for an entire day. I want to see where it goes. I want to kind of see the city through her eyes. Just take a little break from me and all my own needs and desires and, and just cow around a little. Here's the sun, pale orange, and here's a cow chewing rice, a black cow, and she's looking at me.
Can I record you chewing rice? She's walking off. Yeah, I'll follow her from sunrise to sunset. A day in the life of a Varanasi cow. You and me, cow. Just gonna take a picture of her. Aren't you pretty? Some bathers are just standing there, drying off, looking at the sun quietly. My cow is just standing there looking at a men washing clothes quietly. Dogs fighting. looking man washing me narrating what did John Cage say that if something is boring for two minutes try it for four and if it's still boring try it for eight minutes and If you're still bored, try following a cow for a day. I'm only noticing now that she probably doesn't have milk. Her udder is pretty small. Maybe she's young, young cow, maybe three or four years. I don't know. I don't know how to tell the age of a cow. I'm no cow expert. This is an experiment. Making radio about something I don't know anything about. I feel like usually voices on the radio are authorities on something. I have no authority. I'm gonna try to just be close to her and listen. There's some girls singing up a few steps further back away from the river. I think listening can be a kind of statement. Hello? 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 
What if just listening could be the advancement of an idea? Just kind of observing, taking in the world, listening to it. This boat going by out of the Ganges. The engine. Just listening to that engine. Stating its fact. The statement of the engine. just coming in from the river. Maybe 20 or 30. One of them, a man with a hat, just walked over to my cow and was touching her, scratching her head. She seems to like that. Another one is taking a picture of her. There are four little starlings around the cow now. I think they're starlings. More of the tourists step up to the cow and take pictures. I'm gonna take a picture of the cow with all the tourists. You have so much patience. I think I can learn from you. moving <clears throat> I'm moving too she just went up 10-20 um, steps of the stairs up toward the city and she's sticking her head in, in a dustbin now she doesn't seem to be eating from the dustbin she's more just kind of rummaging around in them She's really just curious about human beings and what they leave behind. She's picked up a plastic bag from the dustbin and she's kind of swinging it around, emptying its content out in the stones. Fact of the cow. She's black. She has two little horns. She's licking the banister. She's licking her nose. She lives by the Ganges, it seems. She hasn't eaten much today. She's eaten just a few bites of rice and a little bit of trash. What else? I'm here 
looking at her. And she fills me with purpose somehow. No, it's not her decision that I'm following her, but somehow she seems to support it. A bird just came and sat on top of the cow. It's like one of the startings from before. You know, she seems tired. She's just resting her head now on the ground. man just got bitten by a dog, a little aggressive dog, coming close to the cow now. There's some guys coming in defense of the cow. That was intense. The dog just attacked the cow while it was lying down. It's attacking its own hind leg. I think it has rabies. You okay? A man just touched the cow to bless himself. She's turning around and looking at me. Who is this stranger? Here comes a guy feeding her. Yeah, he's putting down a bowl. He's feeding her now in his hand. It's like she doesn't want to eat. He's walking away from her now. God, she looks so sad. So melancholy. She brings out a tenderness in me. three hours ago. She's chewing on some tin foil. Can't be very healthy. She's right next to a sign saying brown bread bakery. Wow, I could go for some brown bread right now. <clears throat> I'm realizing that she doesn't really have our friends seems like she's more interested in being with humans she's just standing there now looking at the washerwoman maybe she likes getting sprayed a little from the wet clothes banging up against the stone slabs set of stairs she hasn't gone up before. This is exciting. There's some kind of festival happening here. They're setting up a 
bunch of streamers and they're laying out some colorful banners some lights what looks like film lights oh it's a it's a film shoot and there's a camera up on a on a crane and all the school kids I guess are extras this announcer is um, moving all the extras around for the film shoot suddenly there's a lot of action around the cow I guess there's about a hundred extras they're all clustered in this group uh, in the middle of the square the cow is looking at them okay ready pa the cow has turned her back on the whole scene now she's looking off into the distance and action oh yeah Bollywood here we come and cut huh maybe it's a music video or something the cow has wandered off she really doesn't care you make movies what do you do I'm just recording some sound oh you're recording some sound where is that New York. New York. I met the Goldie Home. Who is that? Actor. She's the actress from America. What's her name? Goldie Home. Where did you meet her? In Banasi. Cool. Can you describe her? What do you mean? What What is she like? She come visiting Ganges. There's the guru who doing the astrology for her. Uh, you believe in astrology? Not really. Not really. Goldie Horn? Yes. She's famous? She's famous from America. Mm. Traveling alone? Yeah. When do you come, Varanasi? About two days ago, I think. Two days. Yeah. Do you work um, on the river? No, I work with textile. I'm making the silk. I see. But you met Goldie Horn. Where did you meet her? In Main Ghat. Uh-huh. Long time before, 20 years before. I was a child. Oh, wow. You still remember it? Yes. But you work in textile, are you a weaver? Yeah, we are weaver. If you want, have a look, my place. I'm, um, I'm hanging out with the cow. Cow? Yeah, there she is. Yeah. They are belong from someone. Who does she belong to? Do you know her? Somebody, you know, who caring, getting the milk. They take care about them. But I don't think she has milk. Yes, you don't. But somebody care about them. You're Hindu? I'm Hindu. So for you, the cow is holy? Yeah. 
Like Mother God, we respect him, we take care about him. Would you ever eat a cow? Never, ever. I am vegetarian, I like to be. What's your name again? Nicola. Nicola. How can I listen to this music? Oh, it's not music, it's... Um, Sound. Sound. It's our conversation. What are you doing with this? I don't know, I might make a radio documentary about it. Radio documentary? About a cow. About cow. Yeah, so I'm, I'm following her around. Hmm, that good. I met her six o'clock this morning, and I've been with her since. Since six o'clock with this cow? Yes. What are you doing with her? I'm just watching her. He's gone now. She? She gone now. All right, Nicola, I'm going to follow the cow. Yeah, after follow cow, you can look my factory. Okay. Where is your factory? Just here, nearby here. I'll, I'll find you. I wait for you, I stay with you. Okay. I'm watching also cow. <laughs> All right, status. It is quarter past one. The Bollywood director is still yelling at all the actors and extras. Music's still blaring. And I've decided now to walk off and get some lunch. Of course, I'm afraid that she'll be gone when I come back, but... Seems unlikely. Alright, I'm gonna run and grab some lunch and be back shortly. So I'm in this cafe having lunch and I just met a couple of Indian guys and it seems like you guys were discussing religion and politics. Can I ask about the cow? Like what does a cow mean to you? Cow is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In India cow is a very nowadays the cow is a political animal. Political please, animal. Please, please, please. Put it off. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I wanted to ask you about, yeah. Is it okay if I record you? Mm, I think not okay for me. Why? Uh, because anything can happen anywhere because some people are very, very dangerous now. So Wait, you're can... afraid of talking about the cow on, on Cow on is, a, is, a, is a very political thing now. <laughs> yes. A uh, religion thing is individually, not this you can't show publicly. Everybody have their own perspective so they can do what they like to do. Thank you both so much. So I'm walking back along the river now. This choreographed dance movement happening. And here's my cow just watching among hundreds of extras. The cow and I are definitely in the shot this time around. I can see the camera. It's about three, four hundred extras on this big. open square down towards the river. Now they just threw color in the air again. 
some kind of production assistant just hurried her out of the set. There was her first move of the day. star now. Cow. She's all purple. Wonder if she recognizes me. Some birds are fighting with some monkeys over a tree. A couple of guys smoking ganja on the Ganges. Uh, here's my friend the cow chewing on a piece of cardboard. Why would she be eating cardboard? Hey cow. I'm worried about you. Aren't you supposed to eat much more? I'm mothering her. Or fathering her. It's a silly expression to mother someone. Now that guy just slapped you, huh? I'm sorry. How's it going? Well, you're all colored. You got some yellow there on your ear. You got some red there on your back. Were you in a film? Huh? Were you hanging out on a film set? Where they were throwing colored powder? It's uh, 4.20. I have been with the cow for 10 hours and I've started talking to her she's not really talking back in fact she hasn't said much all day she she moved a few times around noon singing like this say it again singing singing song song gana i like this gana you like to sing do you want to sing a song? Mm-hmm. Do you want to sing a song for me? Har meri kabudhi ma hai Har uska usse nata hai Har meri kabudhi ma hai Har uska usse nata hai मेरी माँ बताती है गंगा मेरी माता है मेरी माँ बताती है गंगा मेरी माता है हर मैं तो बहुत ही जिलूँ हँसो भी नहीं पाता हूँ जब जब दुखी होता हूँ माँ के पास जाता हूँ माँ सब समझ जाती है हकासी लेके आती है 
हमेरी खुशी के खातिन हंगा मेरी ही माता है थैंक यू सो मच थैंक यू सो मच दैट वॉज ब्यूटिफुल कैन यू एक्सप्लेन द सॉन्ग टू मी द मीनिंग ऑफ द सॉन्ग जी महाराज Ganga you were singing about Haan. Ganga meri mata meri mata ha mata means mother mother mother, mother. mother. i like this singing yeah you're a good singer you're a very good singer bhojpuri <laughs> bhojpuri <laughs> thank you wow what well, he was singing uh, i lost the cow where did she go He was singing about the mother Ganga and while he was doing that I lost track of the cow the other mother That's a nice way to end it I guess just the cow walking off while this young guy was singing to me about the mother the river mother Yeah, it's getting dark now. It's 5:01. I've spent about 11 hours with a cow. I don't know what's interesting about this. Maybe it's just an exercise in in being present, just being with a cow. Being with myself. being with a cow a cow a day keeps the boredom away i think i'll do a traditional radio sign off this is pike melinovsky in varanasi india signing off after a day with a cow A Cow a Day was produced by Pike Malinowski for Balling Tree Productions and Between the Ears on BBC Radio 3. I turned a mounted uh, mouse head into a, a hairpin. Between the six of us on staff at Third Coast, we listen to thousands of hours of audio in any given year. So when we hear a new original voice, It stands out like a bell in a monastery and we take note. In fact, we felt it was so important to recognize these innovative voices, we created the Best New Artist Award as part of our annual documentary competition. In 2016, the award went to Rachel Matlow for her gut-wrenching story Dead Mom Talking. A year later, Rachel produced another story, which is a little bit more in the gut-busting category. Here's the teenage taxidermist. I have to take a lot more showers than usual because especially with the skinning of them they can be very stinky and don't really want to be going to school with organ fluids all over my shirt and skin. I am 15 and I am the teenage taxidermist. I first started taxidermy 
when I was sitting on my bed and watching a show and some movies, very into horror movies, and I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and <laughs> the main character Norman Bates actually does taxidermy. It just seemed like something I would be into. I got a call at work one day when he had a short day at school asking, uh, Mom, do we have any sodium borate? I said, I don't know. I said, is that borax? I said, we've got borax. What do you, what on earth do you want borax for? He's like, taxidermy. I'm like, what? I went to buy some dead rats. I have a pet snake, so I usually buy rodents to feed to my snake. So I buy it from that shop. And it was, they're already dead and frozen. I bought a huge plastic tablecloth, threw it down, grabbed a scalpel and borax, amongst a few other items, and just got right into it. I came home from the work that day to his first fully taxidermied piece, which he had completed entirely on his own with the assistance of a YouTube video. It turned out better than I thought, but I kind of forgot to put on the legs. I like to make exotic creatures that are not, that are kind of beyond this world, like polymorphic things that are dressed up like people. This is supposed to be Ratty Potter. He has a little scar on his head, and I'm making a tiny little scarf and wand and glasses. And then my most recent piece was Leonardo Ratvinci. He's a little rat artist. And don't forget the little mouse. Oh yes, I've taxidermied a mouse, but I don't no longer have that because I gave that to someone as a birthday present. I turned a mounted uh, mouse head into um, a hairpin so she can wear a dead mouse in her hair every day. I think she had a good laugh about it. This piece right here, I think, turned out quite well. That rat is riding a squirrel, which is posed, well, like a squirrel. Some of my pieces still have needles in them to keep the skin drying. Those two needles in the nose of the squirrel are actually stuck right now. Can't get them out. That black squirrel was roadkill from three blocks away. And I do remember the morning I was driving to work and I drove down the street. And as I passed the squirrel on the road, there was a little voice in my head said, Oh my goodness you're totally going to pull over and go and look at that squirrel. And if that squirrel looks okay, you're actually going to pick it up and take it home and put it in the freezer for your son, aren't you? And that's exactly how it went. <laughs> and I just, I laughed and shook my head all the way to work after going home and being late for work because I had brought home this squirrel for my son. But honestly, it's raw materials and it's free and it saves the city from picking it up. Uh, and it was, you know, a lovely, plump squirrel until it had been hit by a car that morning. And the look on my son's face when I said, close your eyes and hold out your hand that night was so worth it. I was astonished. I was like, what store did you get this from? I don't know many stores that sell squirrels. I feel lucky for having someone who would understand what what I do and be willing to go that far or even allow me to stick any sharp items into a dead corpse in his bedroom <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I would personally consider myself, other than being a taxidermist, a nerd. I, um, I like superheroes, comics, and video games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and things like that. And I have a comic book stapled to my walls around everywhere. Just part of my collection I like to show off. And other than that, scattered taxidermy supplies. And beside you right now is my freezer. That was a Christmas present. It was a Christmas present from his parents because our freezer was constantly full of really horrifying things in states of semi-undress. Um, Especially when we have an Airbnb in our basement. So we do have Airbnb guests from time to time using our fridge and freezer. And Tristan's father is a vegetarian and a practicing Buddhist and would rather not see these things all the time while he does support Tristan's passion. Also in these, this freezer, I have multiple rabbit heads. You know, it should be underscored that Tristan is an incredible animal lover and that no lives have been taken just for the pursuit of his art. I am a very large animal lover. I have multiple pets, and I've had multiple pets in the past. Rabbits, I've had pet rats, snakes, lizards, dogs, frogs, fish, all of the above. And I I really do love them. So I've gone through a lot of deaths and phases with these animals, I know my first few were very harsh on me, but after a while, you pick up on it and you realize it's a natural part of life. And then after a while from that even, you realize that when you bury them, you're kind of wasting them and not really preserving them and leaving them be. So I like to believe that when I do texture me, it shows that we're using as much as of them as we can and preserving them as much as we can, like even beyond death. He knocks my socks off. So right now I'm going to be working on my rabbit, which has been sitting in my freezer for about a week now, being tanned and pickled with borax and alcohol. So. This guy actually doesn't have hind legs. So I'm going to make him a zombie crawling. And it's going to have, like, guts hanging out from the back of it. My last rabbit that I tried to do, it turned out that the stomach was already rotting from the inside. So that was a... That was a really horrible... (sighs) I did not have fun. It was stinky. It was it was hard with uh, with one of the early specimens that Tristan did and he had set up his studio up here in his bedroom and uh, he was he was skinning a rat and he came down and went, oh, my gosh, we've perforated the stomach and it stinks. And he he grabbed a strawberry out of the fridge and he sliced it in half and he duct taped it to his nose. And he (laughs) wore that for the rest of the evening so that he would only smell strawberries instead of... Mm -hmm. And so at Christmas, his stocking had things like um, air freshener and Clorox wipes (laughs) and some things for him to manage these kind of um, incidents when they happen in his home studio. Right now, I'm putting my hand into the body of the rabbit to put the skeleton in. It feels like leather gloves, except cold and powdery. And right now I can stick my entire arm into it. With the rats and mice, they're like finger puppets. 
sometimes kind of fun to play around with them. I have a little brother, and sometimes I play around with them as puppets with him. One of the creepier parts of our relationship. <laughs> a lot of my friends think it's cool, and a lot of friends don't want to talk to me anymore about it. Because, yeah, they, um, they're they a bit freaked out. Um, a lot of people, they keep on saying that um, I should stop doing this. It's not healthy. And that they're a little bit worried for me. They're squeamish and don't think it's natural to be doing this. It is profoundly exciting to me, my son's interest in something so unusual and frankly really fascinating. It's also really conflicting. It makes me vulnerable as a parent because I know that there is such a dominant prevailing attitude that what he's doing is gross. It's disgusting. It's macabre. It's maybe maybe reveals that there's something deviant or menacing in my teenage boy. So it saddens me when people's response is, oh my goodness, here comes the next Dexter or Hannibal Lecter. Because in reality, also, maybe here comes the person who's going to solve cancer in animals, and then that'll lead to solving it in humans. Or maybe it's someone who's going to perform surgeries that save lives, or any number of other things that just come from being inquisitive about the body and really coming to understand how the body works. When I go inside the animal, you can see the inside of it. And it's really interesting seeing what runs this animal, what made it have a life like we do, what made it so it could move, so it can see, so it can think, how it lives in this world, and how it lived in the world, how it died, and... Like when I was doing the squirrel, which was roadkill, I could tell that it wasn't run over by a tire because it wasn't flat. But I could see that one side of its body was good, but the other side had a shattered rib cage, which was really interesting. So I could see it probably bounced off a hood of a car from one side. So what I'm actually going to do now is make the limbs of the rabbit, which are a little bit challenging. But we've only got two here, so it won't take too long. I'm hoping that eventually I can get to selling pieces. Maybe hipsters or collectors, friends of mine, feel like for the non-squeamish, these would be nice birthday presents. But what really needs to be done first is I need to hold my pieces and hold it for long enough that I can tell that I've done everything right and that it actually preserves. If I find out that bugs start getting into this, I know I'm doing something wrong in my process and then I have to do something else. Now, with the foot, this is where there's still meat inside and still bone. There's not much meat, it's mostly bone, so I actually need to stick it into the bone. Do this all with feeling around from the outside and get it down into the paw and then stick it out the end of the, the bottom of the paw.
There we go. Found it. The real magic about it is when it's finished and it all goes together because that's when you're like, wow, this looks like a rabbit. This is a rabbit. Before, you're like, this is a big hunk of cloth and and fur. But when it's all together, that's when you realize what it really is. And it does look like a rabbit because, you know, it is a rabbit. Ah, damn it. My parents covered him with the lasagna and bread. He's in there somewhere. He's frozen, though. Wait, they're putting lasagna now in your freezer? Yeah. I thought your freezer's for your animals. That's what I try to tell them, and then they just get their own stuff and throw it in there. The Teenage Taxidermist was produced by Rachel Matlow for the Sunday edition from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. To listen to Rachel's 2016 award-winning story, Dead Mom Talking, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. I need a miracle, Susie. I don't have any miracles. I wish I did. I have been insanely lucky to have worked with the amazing producers I've had on ReSound. Roman Mars, Dennis Funk, Katie Mingle, and Delaney Hall. Could a host be any luckier? I am here to tell you, no. And their talents are in no way limited to the mixing board. So when we hear them reporting stories from the field, we play them with pride. Which brings us to our next story by Delaney Hall. It's about her visit to an unusual, isolated community of people who don't necessarily prefer it that way, but they need it that way. To those who live there and the others clamoring to move in, and there are many, there's only one snowflake in Arizona. I'm just going to fill up, fill up this tub of water. The day before I leave on a reporting trip, I usually just pack my suitcase and test my recording equipment to make sure everything is working right. Okay, that should probably be enough. But tomorrow I'm headed to an isolated community in eastern Arizona, and I've been asked to clean my clothes in a very particular way. I have a box of baking soda, just dumping some of it in this tub of water. I'm going to be interviewing people who have a condition called multiple chemical sensitivity. It means that they're seriously intolerant to laundry detergent, perfume, cigarette smoke, any number of the synthetic chemicals floating through our air. Yeah, just a little bit more. Letting an outsider into their neighborhood means the threat of exposure. So I've been showering with Dr. Bronner's unscented soap for two weeks. And now this. I got an old pair of jeans. I'm putting them in too. I have definitely never had to prepare for a reporting trip in this way. Multiple chemical sensitivity, which is also sometimes known as environmental illness, is a controversial condition. People who have it are powerfully affected, sometimes disabled, by migraines, muscle pain, rashes, nausea, and fatigue. But many studies have failed to show a convincing connection between chemical exposures and symptoms. There's no clear medical consensus about what causes the illness. Doctors disagree about whether symptoms are physiological, psychological, or both. It's my first morning in Snowflake. And this is really an incredible landscape. Very flat, very dry. You can see a long way in every direction. And the sky is very blue. 
I'm not here to find out whether or not multiple chemical sensitivity is quote-unquote real. I'm here to learn more about what this community is like and how people cope after leaving behind homes, jobs, and sometimes families to escape to this remote, grassy plateau. This is an illness that can leave people very isolated. Hi. I hope you're Delaney. I am. Susan Malloy has short, curly hair and a wide grin. People have described her to me as a fairy godmother and the queen. It's below freezing, but all the windows in her small house are open. For people with MCS, their home is the only environment they can truly control. I'm suddenly very aware of my smell. I'm worried I didn't prepare well enough. Susan offers me a cup of coffee. Do you like milk in it? Sure. And then, just as I worried... I smell cigarettes. Um, what would you like me to do? I'm not quite sure. Okay. I'm going to get close to you for just a sec, okay? Sure. It's a blouse, maybe. Okay. Do you mind if I give you something else to wear? No, not at all. Okay. Well, I do have guest clothes. Okay. Susan is at the heart of this community. She works with curious outsiders like me, attends conferences on disability rights, and spends hours each week answering phone calls and email from people who are ill. She's healthier than many of her neighbors, but that hasn't always been the case. For me, it was just real fast. I felt this just bizarre feeling in my head. And my sinuses and the palate of my mouth and my throat um, also closed. Susan was living in San Francisco when she first got sick, back in the early 90s. Her sensitivities began to cascade, which is pretty typical for the illness. Her allergy to chemicals grew into a sensitivity to food and clothing, then electricity, telephones, computers, kitchen appliances, pretty much everything became toxic to her. Furniture had to go, the rugs had to go. I had two girlfriends come over and and take my clothes. Just got rid of almost everything right away. Susan slept on friends' porches, in her car, and at her parents'. At her very worst, she couldn't even drink chemically treated tap water, and her mom put buckets in the yard to gather rain. Then a friend told her about Snowflake, a rural, high-altitude community with good, clean air. When she came to visit... For me, the improvement was so radical. You know, you get out of the car, you feel better. You can walk. You don't need the oxygen tank. Your, your speech is clear. I didn't exactly want to move here, but my body said, yeah, we're moving here. <laughs> For Susan, the move felt like a passage, like a journey between two different worlds. Like in the old days for someone to get on a ship and go to the United States from Ireland. They didn't really want to leave. It's just they weren't able to make it anymore, and so they took this huge risk and got on a ship. I think it felt a little bit like that to me. And gradually more people moved to Snowflake. They came from all over. An engineer from Denmark, a marketing director from Toronto, a chef from the Philippines, a teacher from San Francisco. There are now about three dozen households scattered across the area, all united by this illness. And they keep coming. When Susan's phone rings, it's usually not a good sign. I don't get calls from people for whom everything is going great, you know? Hello? Hi, Susan, this is John 
Robinson. How are you? Hi. Do you know if Carol's place is um, available? Because I uh, could not be doing worse. And I've got to get out of here. My skin, skin is literally burning and bleeding from the pollution. Susan gets several calls and, like this um, a week from runners, people who are moving from place to place, trying to find somewhere that feels safe. I'm sorry, but there is someone living there. Susan keeps track of the limited housing in Snowflake, and she breaks the bad news when there's no help she can really give. You never know. I'm, looking, I'm waiting for a miracle to happen. I need a miracle, Susan. <laughs> I don't have any miracles. I wish I did. I know. I know you're not asking me to get off, but I need to go because I'm too emotional right now. I'm afraid that's what a typical call is like. You know, people who are real sick where they are and need to be in a, another kind of housing, and there isn't any. Well, we're on our way to visit my new next-door neighbors, people, uh, two women who are building a house that's absolutely lovely. Millie Sumberg and Charlie Lugo moved to Snowflake three years ago. Housing is very limited here, so they've decided to build their own chemically safe home based on techniques that have been developed in Snowflake over the years. Is it okay to come in? Yeah. Okay. This house represents a huge leap for Millie and Charlie. A few years ago, they were sleeping in their car while they looked for a doctor in Orange County to treat Millie's debilitating sensitivities. One morning, Charlie was brushing her teeth in a parking lot. And then somebody gave me a banana. Ina, I turned to her and said, what does she think? We're homeless? You know, it kinda, it's a hard thing to accept because we had such a great life. Charlie had worked as a chef and Millie had worked in the tech industry. She made a good salary and traveled all over for conferences. I was connected to an enormous community of people and I got sick one day and I fell out of the community and basically people never heard from me ever again. I couldn't go back online, I couldn't communicate with people, I couldn't phone people. I've been out in the desert, secluded in a box without any electricity for three years. But slowly, they've been making a life again in Snowflake, with Susan's help. She's lived it and she's listened to it. You know, we're one in a long story and a long history of people that have come through Snowflake. And um, some make it and some don't. It is what it is. Susan has been standing nearby, <laughs> listening. She hugs Millie. <laughs> It's true that there's been a long line of people to come through Snowflake in the past 20 years, but the history of medical migration to this part of the country goes back even farther than that. A hundred years ago, doctors encouraged people with tuberculosis to head west for the clean, dry air. So many patients ended up here in Arizona that tent cities sprouted up across the state, and locals gave them a nickname, Lungers, because of the hacking cough that characterized the illness. If you're sick, you're dangerous and you're not as welcome as you were before, and you get, in effect, put on the ice flow. People did that with typhoid fever, with polio. So this is not an uncommon 
experience for human beings. It's just right now it's our turn. We're it. We're the new guys. But the complicated thing about this illness is that it's so unknown. Some doctors would argue that this place isolates people, pushes them deeper into their sickness. But Susan, Millie, and Charlie told me this place saved their lives. All it takes is one family building a gas station out there on the road. And a lot of us would have to move. We're back on Susan's porch, and she's looking out over the landscape. In a little while, she has a date with another friend in the community. She's going to read him a book, which means she'll stand outside his house, hold the book up to his window, and turn the pages for him. He's too sensitive to let her, or even the book itself, into the house. It makes life here in Snowflake seem so precarious. It is fragile, and I know it, and I treasure it for being here at all. So I, I am hypervigilant about always hoping that nothing's going to happen to us, you know, always hoping that we're going to keep getting away with this life that we've built here. Medical Migrants was produced by Delaney Hall for State of the Reunion. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>